This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. In the untouched regions of the forest, the kōkako runs through the treetops feeding on leaves, flowers and fruit. The South Island kōkako, with its distinctive orange wattles at the base of the bill, hasn't been sighted in many years and may be extinct. A situation the blue wattle bird of the North Island may find itself in unless its habitat is preserved. Its delightful call includes a variety of rich organ and bell-like notes. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good morning, friends. It's good to have you with us. We'll be talking with Rebecca McPhee, a journalist who is a recent winner of the Bruce Jessen Prize for her book on the Pike River mining disaster. She has also written a biography of Helen Kelly, the former leader of the New Zealand Council of Trade Unions, and has a a good knowledge both of the unions and of um, Helen Kelly and Pike River. Rebecca, why did you write about Pike River mine disaster and then go on to write about Helen Kelly? Uh, well, I obviously uh, Pike River was um, a major, major story, and I was working for the Listener magazine as um, a South Island writer at the time. So I was pretty involved with reporting on Pike from from when it happened, and then I was also reporting from the Royal Commission that sat through 2011 and early. Uh, 2012. Um, so my book, well, I was <laughs> I was asked by a publisher to write a book. I, I resisted it for a long time. I'd never written a book before, but um, I was uh, pretty outraged by the Pike story, as as every as everybody in the country um, ought to have been. If they weren't, they should be. And so the book. Uh, came out of that. I wrote it in 2013, so the Royal Commission had sat and reported its findings by then. But um, my work kind of tried to build on the Royal Commission by going back more deeply into the the company history um, to try and, I guess, tell the story of... um, a company full of fantasy and grandiosity and how um, the, the roots of the disaster lay back in the, the co- kind of corporate origins of the mine proposal, how the, the financial promises had been overcooked and how it had really lurched from calamity to calamity all the way through until eventually, of course, it um, blew up before it had even really begun mining coal and killed 29 workers. So um, clearly it was a story that was of 
huge significance and remains so. That's, I guess that's the simple way that I can answer that question. Was it a disaster waiting to happen, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was a kind of, you know, for months, really. It had been probably a Russian roulette. I mean, it could have happened at any time. They didn't have the most basic gas monitoring in place. That was It was a shambles. There were contractors falling over themselves in and out of the mine. Um, there was no functioning health and safety committee. Um, the union presence was very small. I mean, the union, the engineers' union did have um, members there, but it was really focused on trying to build a presence there. It had no functioning bargaining presence and certainly no functioning health and safety presence. And also it's, it was so early on in the, in the life of the project that it blew up that, you know, I guess my feeling has always been that the workers underground never really fully managed to join the dots to see how catastrophically flawed the, the place was. Some, some workers certainly did and were had left and were leaving. But they were tied in by a, a, a bonus scheme at that point. The, the directors considered that the best way to deal with the lurching, incompetent mine was to pay the workers a big fat bonus to try and get them and get it into production. So that just locked workers in even more. Um, and um, you know, was one of the one of the I guess factors feeding into the, the climate in the mine in the in the in the weeks leading up to the explosion. Were they in a hurry to open up? Oh, the company certainly yeah. was. They were, they were they were very behind. You know, they'd made fantastical promises about how much mine was uh, how much coal was going to come out of the mine, which were were never feasible. They were you know effectively as a company that was. Um, built on made-up numbers. It was a financial bubble, really, built on the soaring, what was then Except the soaring coal price. Except it was a, a real coal mine with real people underground. Yeah, yeah, it was a bubble, but a, a real bubble. Um, was... and, and the great tragedy of Pike, as I've sort of said a number of times, is that it didn't just go broke. It, it had to blow up and then go broke. Now, admitting the neglect and um, blame, you, you might say, of the company. Was a mining disaster or something like that waiting to happen for the last 20 or 30 years? Because from the, of from the, the changes, yeah, for the changes in regulation, the changes of uh, work safety teams, the changes of responsibility mm. of the union. Yeah, I, I think they're certainly all fundamentally part of the, the the deep causes of Pike and, and yeah, it, it could have it could probably have happened elsewhere. I mean I can't comment on other mines. I, you know, I haven't studied other mines. This is the one I know about. Um, but certainly when Pike blew up and the word went around the country that there'd been a mine uh, something had happened at one of the mines a lot of people's first instincts who who were associated with the mining industry thought it was the Solid Energy Spring Creek mine on the west coast. Those for that very first period of time, you know, an hour or so before people knew it was Pike River. So um, certainly the 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 status, the standing, the influence of the mining inspectorate had been. Uh, 
really destroyed over the previous 20 years. And Pike had been one of the companies that had resisted any serious improvement in regulatory oversight as well. Um, you know, it, this was a period where, you know, companies can regulate themselves. You know, we know what we're doing. You know, we um, we don't want check inspectors in the mine. Uh, you know, we're, we're the experts in this. Is that the basic problem, this idea of self-regulation and the fact that government should step aside? Um, it's certainly a big part of the problem, the idea that... Um, I mean, the, the, the 1992 Health and Safety and Employment Act, which is what Pike operated under, wasn't supposed to end up like that. You know, it was supposed to be a... Um, um, you know, what's called the Robins model, the three-legged stool where you've got worker participation, you've got an effective regulator and you've got the competent employers. So the, the philosophy of the health and safety legislation that Pike operated under was, wasn't intended to be feeble. It just turned out that way because that was the climate of the period. So, But wasn't the, that, the new regulations and the employment contracts theory itself part of that. And the employment contract is certainly part of that because we stripped out the union movement. Yeah. Um, so uh, you had the Employment Contract Act came in in 1991 and the Health and Safety and Employment Act in 1992. The, the Employment Contracts Act really devastated the union movement effectively overnight, really. So by the time that Pike came along, you know, it sort of started to get up and, as a project, get its kind of financial, um, find its financial backers through the kind of the middle of the 2000s and then it actually starts, actually, it actually starts as a project 2005, 2006, goes public as a public company in 2007. Through all that period, the, the regulator, uh, health and safety regulator, is has become completely run down. The idea of specialist inspectors has completely gone. Um, by the time Pike was getting going as a, as a project, um, there was, uh, at, the, at the most, there were two inspectors who covered mines and quarries. It had something like a thousand mm. sites throughout the whole of the country. And much of that time, there was only one inspector. So, you know, it's completely feeble. Did the other industries have similar difficulties, like forestry, for instance? Yeah, forestry. I mean, I think there's always been a, a, a terrible health and safety toll in forestry, but certainly by the time, this, the, I guess, the current generation of plantation forest um the, there is there's, in forestry in the in the kind of forest harvesting sector out on the hills of Hawke's Bay and Tardafity and Northland and so on. I mean, there's effectively no union presence. It's entirely deunionised workforce. Um, very kind of fractured, where owners subcontract to not forest managers who subcontract to harvesters who then, you know, hire their crew and go out on the hill and work in, you know, all weathers, all the hours to, to log the trees. 
So you think a lot of this is actually partially due to the disempowerment of the union movement with the Employment Contracts Act? I think that the Employment Contracts Act is a defining piece of legislation in New Zealand's economic history. Um, you know, it was it was very radical. It it had the effect of really just bringing the union movement to its knees in the 1990s. It uh, the union movement, even when the legislation was changed in 2000 under the Helen Clark government. It was a fairly moderate change. It still effectively remained um, an industrial relations system built on mostly direct contracting between employers and employees. So, you know, for a union to, say, organise and gain a new collective bargaining agreement with a whole large company, let alone a whole industry, it's an incredibly difficult task. You know, it's, and it's where it's in the few cases where it succeeds, it's, it's really years of organising effort. And for much of the time, through even through the early two thousands, a lot of the a lot of the big kind of workplace struggles was about defending what workers already had rather than gaining anything new. And that's really continued to be the theme up until, you know, even right now, we're suddenly starting to see, particularly in this high inflation environment, where in more workplaces, often quite small workplaces, um, workers are joining unions and they are saying, no, you know, we need a 6% pay rise. Inflation's at six percent, and um, and actually we're going to go on strike to get it. And this has happened um, just in the last few weeks. Really, we're seeing more kind of more kind of um, I don't know. I suppose I would call it a kind of grassroots impulse from amongst workers who are just saying, "Look, I, we can't live on these wages anymore," um, and. And it's not enough to just ask nicely of their employers for a decent pay rise. They're having to go on strike or mount a, an overtime ban. For, it, it's some workers who, who just achieved the settlement, I think the overtime ban they held for seven weeks. So, you know, they're having to fight really hard for quite, still quite modest gains. So, yeah, okay. go on. Can you talk about Helen Kelly a bit and then we'll go back to this? Oh, never really leave it if you talk about Helen Kelly, but... Hmm. Um, yeah, so Helen Kelly was the... She became the, the president of the Council of Trade Unions in the end of 2007. And she kind of put the union movement back on the map, if you like. She was quite charismatic, quite um, innovative and creative, um, highly productive, uh, she developed the view and became much more staunch in this view that the union movement had to go beyond just speaking for and representing paid-up members of unions, that the union movement had to really re-anchor itself as, um, as the representative body and the voice for all people who sell their labour or who live by their labour. 
because by then, um, well, really, ever since the Employment Contracts Act, the union coverage got down to, I think we're around about 17% of the workforce is in a union now, and in the private sector it's much lower, it's around about 10%. And that figure has been stuck there for really since the Employment Contracts Act or the, the few years after the Employment Contracts Act. Wasn't that the purpose of the Employment Contracts Act? Oh, of course it was. You know, of course it was. The purpose of the Employment Contracts Act was to, you know, disable the union movement, if not to destroy it, which, you know, I think is a, you know, certainly the most um, aggressive proponents of the Employment Contracts Act, you know, had a, had a special loathing, you know, for for unions, for the idea of collective labour. Isn't that partly the idea that every individual should look after themselves and that's it? That we shouldn't collectively help each other, either for government or even collectively among ourselves. That mm. uh, We should take care of ourselves. And, and if we're fortunate to inherit wealth or or gather wealth, why we should be free to use it as um, we see fit with, uh, you know, and uh, too bad for the people left behind. Mm. I mean, certainly the most, the most um, ideologically extreme activists behind the Employment Contracts Act, which was really their business roundtable, um, Roger Kerr, who led the business roundtable, was highly influential in making the Employment Contracts Act the, the, the legislation that it was. I mean, he had a special hatred for collective action. You know, he regarded it as one of his, one of um, one of the, I think it was seven, I think he had seven deadly, seven uh, economic sins and collectivism was one of them. So, and so there was a genuine, like, well, there, there was a, there was a philosophy being actively promoted that took deep root that workers should and can bargain as individuals with employers and that the notion that there was an unequal bargaining power in the workplace was a myth and a falsity and that if we take the unions and uh, concepts like um, centrally, centrally kind of organised collective bargaining out of the picture then workers will be able to negotiate the terms and conditions that suit them with their employer as equal parties. You know, clearly that's completely fanciful, and so it proved to be. But the, it made it so difficult for unions to organise, even reach workers. I mean, there were no rights of access anymore. Um, when the awards expired, just tens, hundreds of thousands of workers were just atomised onto individual contracts. And many of those workers have never been re or re-collectivised again since. And that, you know, that's that as per the plan. Where was the um, union movement in, in 1992? Where I was mean, it, did you say? Yeah, I mean, I remember going down the Regent Theatre uh, and most, most of us wanted to have some kind of strike. Mm. You, even if it were, a, we could start on a Friday and finish on a finish on the sun and come back to work Monday if if it didn't work out, if we didn't get support. But the they, Ken Douglas and the leadership of the union movement, to some extent, 
post that. Why? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a kind of a bit of an eternal question, really. Um, it was a hugely, a hugely divisive um, moment, really. Um, yeah, there was a big move from many in the union. It wasn't just the industrial workers, too. It was, I was in the post office, and most of us would have supported. Yeah. Yeah, there was a, a lot of rank and file support for a, a general strike of some sort. Um, look, at the uh, entire theses could be written about this probably, and it still divides people in the union movement today, you know, the general strike that never happened in 1991. Um, there was a huge conference of union leaders held in Wellington over this. It went to the vote. It was, it, it was voted down. Um, yeah, Ken Douglas opposed the idea of a general strike. He thought it was um, futile, that it wouldn't mm-hmm. succeed, that the government was mm-hmm. hell-bent on passing this legislation. Um, a general strike wasn't going to... Well, it's because the government anything. was hell-bent on passing it that you needed a general strike. Mm. I mean, if the, yeah, government, well, if the government was willing to negotiate... You don't need a general strike when people were willing to negotiate. Mm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you there. I'm just trying to explain, you know, how I understand the mm. position did, of those where, who. Where did Ken Douglas go? I mean, was, this, was he? Did he remain a strong union activist and supporter after that? Ah, uh, Ken Douglas remained the president of the CPU through until uh, now. 1999, so through through the year, through the decade of the Employment Contracts Act, then was there as the leader of the union movement. Um, I mean, it was a it was a somewhat divided, um, frazzled organisation in some ways. By then, um, some of the big unions um, had pulled out. Mm. Um, it had competition. A new uh, a new grouping called the Trade Union. Congress had set up um, uh, Maxine Gay, who had been prominent in the union movement for many years, led that. Uh, they were sort of, I guess, the more activist unions who went into the TUC. Um, so, yeah, it was a very, very bleak time for the union movement as a movement. Uh, it was divided. It, it had lost huge resources because so many workers fell out of union membership with the end of the award system and the end of union deductions. It became so difficult for unions to recruit new members. So it was really in a savagely sort of depleted state by the end of the 90s. Um, And Ken uh, Ken retired, Ken Douglas retired um, at the end of the decade and Ross Wilson was his um, successor. In why do you think the union movement's important to society? Why do I think it is important? Yeah, I mean, not just the individual workers, but to society. Um, I. Why do I think it's important to society? Um. Well, in, in New Zealand, um, 
something like 2.2 million people, depending on how you count the numbers, you can you can call it 2.8 if you include sort of dependent contractors and so on, sell their labour for um, to, to survive. And they're not business owners. In many cases, they're not even property owners. Increasing numbers are not even house owners anymore, of course. Um, the business sector has its representative voices, Business New Zealand, the Manufacturers Association, all the rest of it. Those who sell their labour need to be need to have a voice, um, and there needs to be collective bargaining because the idea that individual workers can uh, can bargain on an equal footing with a company for a fair wage is is ludicrous. Isn't it the union movement actually essential to have a, an idea of a collective society, a society where we look after one another? Do, do don't people, working people, actually need to feel represented in society? Uh, this it seems like the the eighty and the eighties and nineties and the and the first part of the. 21st century, uh, working people haven't been represented in many, especially English-speaking countries, um, mm. either by union movement or by governments or parties. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what I'm saying. I think, you know, people who work for a living need to be representative, to have a voice, to be uh, have a voice to government, have a collective voice to government. I mean, so there's the kind of civil society aspect of that that you're talking about, but there's also just the brutal reality of bargaining for a decent wage. Uh, you, I mean, collective they, bargaining. You shouldn't have to go wages. to a food bank to supplement your wages. No, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I, I'm certainly not arguing with that. Um. I admit I'm biased by my own experience. Mm. That we need to collectively look after each other, both as unions but also as people. I mean, look at COVID. Mm. Do you think there's any... What is the... What's, how do you build back... Go back where? How do you build a union movement when it's well, against mm. the stream? Well, I think and I, I think it isn't a question of going back. I don't think there is a question of going back to um, some historic point in time. I think the union movement has to be rebuilt. And there is a lot of rebuilding going on. There's a lot of... Um, I, in some ways, I, I guess what I see in my reporting is um, signs of quite a strong new wave of of interest in and understanding of what unionism actually is. You know, and unionism is workers binding together for their collective okay. interest and for their collective representation. So it's not a case, I don't think it's a case of sort of looking for some 
romantic notion of what the old union movement was like because it was certainly pretty flawed. But, you know, I think it's, you know, what's going to be very interesting is with the, the, the government is going to table a bill for fair pay agreements at some point in the next few months. Um, the idea of that is that that puts collective bargaining and the role of unions in achieving you know, industry-wide collective bargaining agreements on a on a better footing. Um, so, you know, that's going to be very interesting to see how that goes, how rapidly that is um, achieves some improvements for workers. I mean, I I think it's it's an interesting piece of law. I, I think it's going to be quite slow to actually make a tangible effect on, on workers' conditions. Um, and it's going to come under, you know, quite severe attack from the business sector who, who doesn't want um, to have widespread collective bargaining and certainly widespread industry-wide or sector-wide bargaining. So, yeah. Okay, I'm going to play a piece of music now. Mm. And it's by Dick... Gonghan, a Scottish um, singer. Returning shop windows, sparkling commodities, Aladdin's caves of treasure, consumer's paradise. Patrolling the windows with clubs and uniforms, security guards protect all this wealth, and they call it freedom. They call it being free. They call it being free. They call it freedom. Single woman with three children Living in a suitcase Scared to go out at night Scared of pushers and muggers Got no place to cook Lives on fish and chips and cornflakes The doctor gave her Valium Said it would help her nerves And they call it freedom They call it being free They call it being free They call it freedom Side behind me, iron curtain. People rise and go to work. I've got no unemployment. I've got nobody dying. Cause they can't afford to eat. I've got nobody dying. Cause they can't afford a home. I've got nobody dying. Cause they can't afford a doctor. They've got nobody dying. Cause they can't afford 
That isn't being free We're told it isn't being free We're told they don't have freedom But just remember if you're starving You get the freedom to starve And if you're homeless Then you're free to have no home And if you can't afford a doctor Then you're free to die of sickness You're just exercising free choice In the free world and having freedom Being free They call it being free They call it free Friends, we're talking with uh, Rebecca McPhee on unions and uh, health and safety and workers, uh, the need for workers to be able to act collectively or people to act collectively. And you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and then going to community or chaos. Rebecca, why it seems that unions have been different too. For instance, I was a a member at one time of the post office union and what we had a percentage raises. And I remember thinking, well I was toward the bottom of that percentage. And if you were earning, you know, eighty thousand a year, a a 10% raise, it'd be huge if you were earning um, minimum, I mean, if you were earning 40000 a year, it wouldn't be near the same, kind of. Mm. And so, as you say, unions have, they weren't perfect, but uh, you certainly realize once you didn't have them, how necessary they were. I think people were actually in 19... 19- 1992 realized how they, they were they just didn't know how to they didn't have the leadership to fight back and they didn't know how to fight back without that leadership yeah I mean I think it's it, 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 it is um, you know endlessly debatable whether or not they could have um, if, if there had been say a general strike whether that would have made any difference to we don't know the, yeah, we'll never know. I mean, I certainly think there's, there's no question in my book on Helen Kelly. Um, I, I cover this in one of the chapters about the origins of the Employment Contracts Act. That Bill Birch, who was the Minister of Labour at the time, was, you know, actively um, nurtured, if you like, by the, 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 the Business Roundtable to take a more extreme view of the labour relations reforms that he was 
already going to push through. So the Employment Contract Act became more radical as a result of, you know, really incredibly effective political organising by the Business Roundtable. But, you know, Birch was also a very, you know, biddable character. You know, he hated unions and he was pretty happy to have them, you know, brought to their knees. So, and he certainly never reviled from... Um, the Employment Contract Act, and interestingly enough, neither has Jim Boulder, even though he has subsequently, in very recent times, led the working party that came up with the um, the, the kind of you know workable working plan for fair pay agreements. But but Boulder, having presided over the introduction of the Employment Contract Act, has still never resiled from that <laughs> legislation. Well, that's one of the interesting things about politics. I suppose it's worldwide that when parties or governments do certain things and it turns out not to work out so well, they don't apologize. They don't say we did it wrong. Mm. I mean, that's one of the limitations, I think, of of political Mm. parties and governments. Yeah, yeah. And it's hard. If you can't say you were wrong, how do you start over? How do you change track? Exactly. Yeah. Um, no. And the have unskilled workers and industrial workers have. What's been their position historically in New Zealand? Um, in terms of pay bargaining? Or? Pay bargaining and also mm. influencing political parties. And mm. I mean, for, well, you know, for the better part of 100 years, um, we did have a you know highly centralised pay bargaining system under the old Industrial Conciliation and Arbitration Act. So, you know, we were probably an unusually um, centrally organised um bargaining system where, you know, unions and employers would meet in front of government conciliators and pay settlements would be Mm -hmm. reached and that would be Mm -hmm. turned into a a national award or an industrial award and that would apply across the board Mm -hmm. to every worker who did that work. I mean, we we, that was our system. Well, that was a system Um, that became a model for certain Scandinavian countries, including mm -hmm. not only in Kansas. Scandinavia, but also Germany to a certain extent. Mm. Well, you you may well know more about the European model than I do. I've never, you know, I don't have detailed knowledge of the European system, except that they certainly, even now, have much, much higher rates of of collective bargaining coverage than we do. I mean, in New Zealand, we have both now very low union membership and extremely low rates of coverage under collective bargaining contracts. So... Do you think this is um, influences the fact that we have very low wages and also people can't afford housing? Is all this is there something connecting all this? Well, yeah, I mean there's there's no there's no question that wages have eroded since uh, and, and, and Bill Rosenberg um and Jeff Bertram have done some work recently on this. I don't think it's published yet, but um They've been they've been studying the question of labour share of the economy for a long time, particularly Bill Rosenberg. Um, so, in other words, that you know the share of 
national income that goes to wages as opposed to profits. And that has been declining for a long time. And they, some of their recent work has, has been able to establish that the kind of the, the break point in that declining labour share comes with the Employment Contracts Act. And I mean, globally, the evidence is that oh, collective bargaining lifts wages. You know, there's no, there's not really any serious argument about that. I don't think, um, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, doesn't. It's not that hard to kind of see why. You know, if you go back to thinking about your individual worker, individual McDonald's worker, trying to bargain a fair wage with McDonald's Inc. I mean, it's not really a fair bargaining um, relationship, is it? No. So, you know, it, it, anybody can intuitively see why um, individual workers are not going to be as able to negotiate improved wages alone uh, compared with if they are acting together with a union negotiator. Can um, unionism really be separated from politics. I mean if you do if you have a if you have a government for instance like we had in the 1990s who's anti-union um, and you and you don't even in the other parties you don't have that much opposition or support for strong union movement, is that union going to be able? To, is unionism going to can it maintain itself if it's uh, isolated politically? Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, I guess uh, the question of 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 fairness, decent pay. Equitable distribution is fundamentally that is what, that is political. So I mean, you can't. My my I guess my definition of what what politics is is fairly broad. I mean, if you if you take if you take it away from pure party politics, then no, I don't think you can disassociate unionism from politics. The work of unions in terms of trying to get a better share of the product of the economy is is fundamentally political, really, if you come down to it. You know, whether you can have a union movement that doesn't have affiliations with parties, with political parties, I think is probably a more technical question. Um, I don't know. I mean, the, 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 yeah, it's, it's, a, like, it's a good question because often... Sometimes I've thought that one reason we people we were afraid of going on a general strike is that we were hoping that Labour would get reelected, even though what Labour had betrayed the the mm. working class. We mm. still had this feeling that we didn't really, you know, that we didn't want to alienate the broad middle class. Yeah, and then, you know, there have always been a number of unions that have never been affiliated to the Labour Party. Um, so it's, you know, that that strict political affiliation is not across the board. And the CTU mm. is, a, is the collective well, well, representative of the union movement that has never been affiliated to the Labour Party either. But, there was, you know, the founding idea was mm. that, you know, you couldn't just be organising in the factories and being a Labour movement with a small L 
you had to have political representation as well. And so that's that's the underlying idea of affiliation to the Labour Party is that the, the party is the political wing of the Labour movement. One of the things that is talked about now is that in many countries you have a left wing that's really dominated by people with university degrees, intellectuals, usually on fairly good salaries. Then you've got the conservative party dominated by business and very little representation for workers. Mm. I agree. How do you change that? No, I think... um you know some of the some of the um, you know like the Labour Party's always been you know the connection between the union movement and the Labour Party here has always been kind of a subject of criticism and you know internal dissent within the Labour Party, but you know that that has been the legitimate route for you know working people and the representatives of working people to come up through the political system to be in parliament, to be that voice. So that, I mean, that is still a channel. Um, and there are people who have been in parliament in recent years who are in parliament now who have come through that pathway. It's often delegitimised as, you know, they're just a union lackey or whatever, rather than recognised as, you know, it's, it's, it's a legitimate... Um, political system, party system to elevate the voice of working people into the into the House of Parliament. You know, nobody yeah. So you think, uh, go on. We saw we had a sea change in the idea of what society was, beginning with Margaret Thatcher. Do you think we might see another sea change of people, younger people thinking about that maybe it isn't all individualism. Do you think that people might be thinking about the mutual responsibility, mutual obligations more? I mean, with climate change, with COVID. Yeah, I certainly do think that. I mean, I think we're. I think we are seeing that. I mean, I think. I think the. You know, the peak. I mean, the peak of that kind of individualized. You know, market philosophy. I think has passed. It's been, you know, I think, you know, it was shown. The consequences of that were have been, you know, were, were shown as flawed in the global financial crisis. And everybody can see that you couldn't have a, a COVID response that was based on, you know, free choice and and the market. You know, you actually had to have essentially determined. Response. Whether you argue, you know, whether you agree with what this, our government has done or not, it doesn't matter. I mean, every country has needed to implement some some kind of collective response to a pandemic. Um, and climate is the same. I mean, anybody who thinks for five seconds about climate and the, the climate existential crisis understands that. There is no individual solution. It's a, it's a collective political solution that is required. It requires policy. It requires it requires competent government. 
it requires science, it requires a citizenry that sees it as a collective challenge that must be responded to. You know, the idea that the market will solve climate change is, is laughable, of course. So I, I do feel that there's, you know, I think, I think you know, peak individualism as a political movement has passed. But we're not, you know, it, 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 that isn't, it's going to take a while to produce any, any results, I, I guess. Yes, that's the problem. We've got our, we've got these crises that have shown us that individualism isn't a solution, but the crises are moving faster than our systems changing. Yeah, yeah, indeed. You talked, you talked to a lot of young people about unions and about um, their ideas about not just unions, but um, other aspects of society as a journalist? Yeah, I, I, I do, not, not in any kind of organised way. I mean, the main way I talk to people is by writing stories. Um, but, I mean, I do, I, I interview um, for my stories a lot of workers, many of whom are young. Um, and I have my own kids. Mm-hmm. who uh, are very affected by the, the, the climate crisis, by the inequality at work, um, who can see things as they are. So, um, yeah, I do, as much as I can. What are they saying to you? Hmm. Well, certainly, you know, many of the younger workers who I talk to have... You know, I think the notion of fairness is intuitive. It's kind of primal. And, you know, when I've spoken to... Say young workers in, in Auckland who are working in, say, labour hire companies. They don't need to be trained to understand that the system of work that they're working under is unfair. You know, they don't. It's intuitive. You know, they know. Of course, that, it's unfair you know, if you experience it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that, that, that people recognise. I mean, I've been on the phone this morning to to. The workers who are, you know, in the situation where, you know, they they have to work sixty hours a week before there's even an extra, you know, before they've even got time in a quarter. You know, people don't need to be politically trained to know that this is unfair. That their employer is getting, um, you know, accruing significant profit from the activities that they are paid. A, a minuscule way to undertake. So it, it doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't take much for people to recognise that, that the system that they are labouring in is unfair. As First Union and Unite, are they doing fairly well? 
attracting young uh, people? I think there's some really very, very interesting um, work going on amongst those unions, um, E2 as well, and other unions, uh, not just not just those. Certainly, um, First Union and Unite are, you know, very uh, activist unions that, you know, they're working with, they're working with workers who are very low paid and often in sectors that haven't, you know, that have fallen out of collective bargaining of, you know, with strong union represent, representation over the last 30 years. And they've got, um, both of them, a lot of, um, I mean, one of the things that happened for the union movement during, as a result of the employment contract that was, was a sort of a, a generation of union leaders went missing. Um, you know, they were laid off or they couldn't be paid anymore as organisers. There's a whole generation that didn't become union members. And so there's, a, there's been a need to kind of renew the talent base, really, of, of union organising. And that's, you know, there's some spectacular people who, you know, in their 20s, 30s, coming up through the union movement now who, you know, is sensational, I think. Um, really smart, very committed, uh, very organised. Are they, like Helen Kelly, willing to try to bring in people that aren't in work at present? Yeah, I think that's fundamentally the, that, you know, when Helen was, um, when Helen was, Kind of articulating that idea that the union movement had to, has to speak for and to genuinely be there for all working people. That was quite radical and a bit divisive amongst some in, in the union movement. But I think that's become a much more, you know, standard idea in the in the union movement now. You know, and, and groups like First Union. I mean that. Union membership in the sectors that they work in, like transport, logistics, warehousing, warehousing, retail, that sort of thing. Union membership is a minority sport, um, so they have to take um, a wide view of this, 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 okay. the, the conditions that all workers in those sectors are working in. Okay, well, we've only got a couple of minutes, but you think change is coming? Um, look, I wouldn't be that bold. I would like to think so. I think that um, I think it's very interesting what we're seeing with some of the pay negotiations that are going on at the moment, where there's a bit more willingness to take strike action. Um, it's small scale, but you know, it, but you know, the, the driver behind that is really people are not earning enough to live. Um, Okay, that's probably a good place to stop. And thanks a lot for coming on, and thanks a lot for what you're doing. Thank you, and you're welcome. That was Rebecca McPhee talking about union movements and the need for them. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.